0: Well, it's good to be back with you again. Um, I'll take, all right. I'll take that. That works. Um, <laughs> um, it's funny that you brought up cell phones. I, uh, a few, it was probably about a couple months ago, I went through a period where I got so many spam calls I was getting two or three a day. You ever been there? Do you guys get spam calls? So a friend of mine just recently started paying for a service that would try to curtail this issue for him. And so I called him the other day, and I got caught up in the, in the filter, so to speak. So there's a robotic voice that came on and said, this phone call is being monitored for spam. And he said, please leave a message and tell me why you want to reach this person, and then we'll let them know. <laughs> um, but I, but let, me, let me just tell you, it, there was a point where I was getting those two or three spam calls a day. And if you've been there, it's super annoying, right? Because they always call at specific moments. They know. They know the moment they're supposed to call you, right? The, the moments where they're gonna trick you and hook you into picking up the phone, right? Um, and so it happened. I was at the gym uh, working out and ended up picking up a call during the workout, which I almost never do. I almost never do that. But um, it happened just as, my, I, as I was arriving, my wife was leaving. So we were passing by each other. And, and I thought, not looking at the screen, I just picked up the phone because I had headphones in. I thought my wife might be calling me. Just because we passed and all that stuff. And, and someone picks up the phone and says, hey, Randy. I said, well, that, I'm not Randy. And by the way, I get calls for Randy almost every single time. Every spam call is for Randy. Um, hey, Randy. Um, are you interested in selling your house? <laughs> I said, no, I'm not Randy. Oh, well, I have you on the phone. Can I? Of course, right? Like, that's the hook, right? They don't care if you're Randy or not. They could, you could be anybody. They just want to get you on the hook, right? So, oh my goodness. So, I try to be polite. I try to hang up, get off the phone. Um, but can I tell you something really unspiritual? <laughs> if there's someone who should be shown absolutely zero grace in this world, it's the person who created spam calls. <laughs> right? Like, maybe, listen, you guys can pray for me after, after I preach here in a minute. But, um, I mean, seriously, like, Who invented such an invasive, awful technique to get you stuck on a phone call to which then they would bother you enough that you might actually commit to what they want? That's a terrible thing. So I often feel bad for the people who are actually making the phone calls, right? Because it's not them. They're not the bad guy. It's the person who created this whole idea. So I try to be nice to that person because they know that they're trying to do a job, right? They're trying to do something for themselves or for their families, and this happens to be just an unfortunate way that they do that. <laughs> but, um, but I want to share a story about grace and, and people who deserve it and don't. Um, and it's tricky. Because grace often comes in ways that like, we, we don't expect. I think it's different than what we think. And grace is something that, you know, we, we think we give to people, and, and that's true. I mean, we do give grace to people. We give people second opportunities and second chances and, and all of that. Um, but there are stories in scriptures that just kind of really disrupt the way we think about grace. So if you, if you have a Bible with you this morning, um, I'd love to share a story from Second Kings. That's back in the Old Testament. If you need to help finding it, it's back towards the beginning of your Bible. Um, it's, again, Second Kings, we're in chapter 5. Um, we'll start at verse 1. It's a, it's a story about a man named Naaman. So again, one more time, 2 Kings chapter 5, starting at verse 1, and, and here's how it reads. Now, Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So let's pause for a moment. Um, one verse in, so I want to just tell you that this story tends to have lots of twists and turns in it. So one verse in, there's a, there's a twist in this that maybe you didn't notice. Most people don't. It says that he's a commander of the army uh, uh, for the king of Aram. Now here's the problem. In, in the second kings, the people of God, Israel, the nation of Israel, was almost at war with Aram constantly. So listen to this part again. He was a great man in the sight of his master, highly regarded, because through him the Lord, God, had given him victory. God had given victory to the rival of his own people. That's weird, right? Right up front, you go, well, wait a second. Why isn't God giving victory to his own people? That's weird. That shouldn't be that. And then we hear he has leprosy. So this is odd, but this is kind of the way the story goes. Right from the outset, this is going to have twists and turns like this. So now, verse 2. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. She served as Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if, or she served Naaman's wife, not as the wife, but she served the wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was a person captured in war and then forced into slavery, I'm probably not doing a lot to help out my captors. Right? Probably not. Let's just be really honest about ourselves, right? Like, we're probably not going out of our way to make sure that our captors, the people who just stole us from our home, are doing okay. And yet here, this nameless girl offers up a solution to Naaman's problem, his leprosy. So verse four, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. And by all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send the letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so you may cure him of his leprosy. He sent him to who? To the king of Israel, not the prophet. The girl says, go to the prophet. King of Aram says, Well here, I'll give you all this money, I'll give you all this stuff. Now go buy your healing from the king. By the way, go buy your healing from the rival king of whom you the God's giving you victory over. <laughs> this is a weird story. But it's weird because now suddenly the king of Aram thinks that they can just buy his healing. So they skip over what the slave girl says and head off to the king. So verse seven, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and you will know uh, that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself in the seven times in the Jordan, Jordan River, that is, and, and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman went away, went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure my leprosy. Are not Abana and Paphar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. So on. So you're a successful military leader loaded with riches to go buy your healing because you have what amounts to an incurable disease that should just isolate you and kick you out of population entirely. Someone tells you something very simple to be cured and you get mad because someone didn't show up the way you wanted them to. You get mad because it wasn't sort of, there wasn't enough pomp and circumstance. There wasn't, there wasn't enough of a celebration of you. You're mad because it didn't go your way. Hmm. So verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean, like that of a young boy. Shocker, (laughs) right? At some point, you follow through with what God's called you to do, and it goes the way it's supposed to. Then in verse 15, then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Even though Naaman urged him, he refused. See, if you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make a burnt offering or sacrifice to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for his one thing. When thy master enters the temple of Vermon, to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Vermon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Elijah says, go in peace. So I don't know, uh, I don't know what kind of TV you watch or streaming you do, but if you've ever watched something like General Hospital or 90210 or Outer Banks, types of dramas. Um, If you've ever watched soap operas, this is a pretty good one, right? Um, And if you don't know what Outer Banks is, it's for young people. If you don't know what 90210 is, then we really probably have a problem because that's what your kids watched, (laughs) right? That's what my age group watched. Um, But this is an odd story twists and turns in it are, are, like I said, like very soap opera-like. Um, but it does do this. It does help us look at the world in two ways. What a world without grace looks like and what a world with grace looks like. It gives us the possibility of what happens if we actually fully give ourselves to this idea of grace. So there's a few lessons that come along with this. And the first thing is this, that grace makes little sense until you have nothing left. It's striking the way the offer of grace, the offer of healing is just so utterly ignored in this story. Sure, it comes from a source in which maybe Naaman doesn't trust. Probably because he ripped a slave girl from her home and made her a slave. (laughs) And probably thinks she's out to no good. There's no way in the world she would do good to me. So why listen to her? Right? So there's those dynamics, but at the end of the day, she says, listen, you want healed from this? Here's how you can be healed. And he ignores it. And at some point, he gets enough to take himself to the king, but then they try to buy it. Worst part is that, sure, the king of Ram and Naaman, you'd expect that behavior from them, right? Right? you expect them to sort of go, well, maybe we can use our force and our power and our might and our our riches to take care of the problem. Because that's how the world operates sometimes. When you live in a world without grace, you use your might and your power and your riches to solve problems, or at least to force the solutions, right? You're strong enough, powerful enough to take care of it yourself. Well, until you're not, right? But here's the worst part of this story. The king of Israel, someone who knows better, someone who knows his own prophet in his own land, someone who should have known better, didn't offer it. Did you notice that? He tore his robes. Who am I, God, he says? Who am I till it heal you? And we might rationalize it. Sure, he's angry. He's been losing battles to this guy. The king of Ram's trying to trick me again. Look at this sending his general over here to to get services from me. And yet, he knew all well that the prophet Elisha was there in Israel. He could have sent him directly to the prophet. Think about that. The one person in the story who could have, who should have, who knew better, didn't do anything with it so it's when there's nothing left, when all options are extinguished, when there's no other way that everybody seems to go, oh, yeah, 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 this makes sense now. <laughs> Instead of the first time around, about the fifth, sixth, seventh time, they finally figured it out. And maybe the problem is, is just how unexpected this is, right? So commenting on, on this story, there's some authors... Uh, Nazarene pastors, Tim and Sean and Gaines, they, they said this. Um, God continues to use outsiders as conduits of God's grace. Naaman is an outsider, as Jesus reminds us in Luke 4. Yet we see that God's grace isn't cut off by the fact that he doesn't know God to start. Right? A slave girl from Israel is an outsider in Aram, but God uses her in an unexpected way to bestow grace upon Naaman. If there's anything we can see in the stories of Second Kings, it's that God uses unexpected people in unexpected places, to bestow unexpected grace. Maybe that's the hard part for us, is it doesn't come sort of the way we think it should. But you know what? When it comes that way, when it's unexpected, it's because we're more used to living without grace than living with it. Because that's what we're used to. This is the way our world works. Who has the power? Who has the might? Who has the missiles? Who has the money? Who has all, right? And whoever has all that stuff, we generally think can just go solve the problems. And yet God continues to use unexpected people and unexpected places to bestow grace in unexpected ways over and over and over again. So here's kind of the hard part of this is that is that for us to be able to be the kind of people who are, who are the people who give this kind of grace, you first have to know it yourself. That says a lot about the people in this story. The kings in the story are so wrapped up in their own world, so wrapped up in their own sort of political power and everything else, that they don't consider it, ever consider it an option. It's not even a tool in their tool belt, so to speak. Naaman, as hardhead as he is, finally comes around, right? And figures it out. But it's people who have been given grace in the story. Elisha. Somehow this slave girl finds reason to give out grace. And our only reason the only reason we can assume that she's even interested in helping her captor is because, well, she knows what grace is. You have to Experience it, and know grace to be able to give it, and he, and this is why, right? This is why it's not it's not really for you. Like right? grace is is it benefits you, right? Like God's grace changes you, but it's not for you. Because the point of the story is the change we see in Naaman. Maybe you didn't catch it. Let me let me go back a little bit to the scripture, and and so you can see this again. Now, if you remember, remember Naaman is the commander of the king of Aram's army. Probably one of the top officials in the kingdom, right? And so he has power and he has might and he has riches and he can go basically buy whatever he wants. He can go take over whole countries if he wants. He relatively needs nothing. And so this man who starts off his relationship with Naaman by by going or starts off his relationship with Elisha, by going to the door and demanding that Elisha come to the door. And when Elisha doesn't, he storms off angry because he feels disrespected. Right? That's how, high, how much he thinks of himself. And maybe for good reason. I mean, his whole country's propping him up. He's been built up to be this kind of person. And then, then he gets washed and gets cleaned. Now listen to the language he uses the next time he speaks to Elisha. So Elisha goes back, it says, at verse 15. He stood before the prophet and he says this, now I know there is no God in the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. A man who previously stormed off angry because Elisha did not respect him in the ways he thought he should be respected, now comes to Elisha, the very same Elisha, and says, I'm your servant. Even with all the power, all the power and might and riches and everything's still there. But something has so deeply changed this man that he comes and says, now I am your servant. Even to the point of, he says, when I go back, he says, Elisha, there's a problem because when I go back, the king is gonna ask me to help him bow down To this God Ramon in this temple, and I'm going to have to bow with him. Is that going to be an issue between me and God? Is God going to forgive that? This is how much his whole world has reoriented. This is how much his whole sort of view on the world and view of himself has changed. He's no longer this high and mighty military man. He's a servant, and he's worried about simple acts like what happens if I actually bow down in this temple even though I don't mean it. If I actually just, but if I actually physically do it, does that, does that matter? Look at the kind of questions he's asking. And then for someone like this to take dirt with him. I mean, he's, he's a man of immense wealth and riches and he chooses to gather up dirt so that he can go back and kind of like make his spot and remember, right? Like dump the dirt on the floor in his house and go, remember every time we step in the dirt like remember what happened grace should reorient the way we look at life that's very true for Naaman but I also wanted you to think about it for you and me like in our own context like think about this think about how how much effort it took for Naaman to get this and when, when we talk about the timeline, I don't know the distances like geographically, but like we're gonna be talking weeks to months of Naaman like traveling and going back and being angry and storing off and coming, like we're gonna be talking weeks to months of this stuff, if not longer, right? So it's not like this happened overnight. And so for you and me as, as people who, who say we follow Jesus, right? Like we gathered here today in some sense because we're saying we are trying to follow Jesus in some fashion and learn to live like him. Um, this, is, this is why. <clears throat> this moment, this, this moment where Naaman's life turns, this is why. We don't, we shouldn't be gathering here simply because it makes us feel good. That's nice, but that's not Why? We gather here for the moments where namens like this have their lives changed. That's why we gather here, so that at some point the grace that we're celebrating, the grace that we're experiencing, might be able to overflow into someone else, and so that we might find the Naamans in our lives have their whole lives reoriented. And notice it doesn't change Naaman's circumstances one bit. But it does change the way Naaman walks into his circumstances. And so for you and me, this, this matters, right? For you and me, it matters because we have Naaman's in our lives. If we're thoughtful about it, we might be thoughtful about what are the things that are happening in our lives that might be opening a door for grace to poke through. Because a story like this should change the way we see the Naamans in our lives. We should see the things that hurt in their life. We should see the things that affect them. And maybe if we really understood grace like the whole way, we'd understand that God's not just interested in like saving their soul and forgetting their body. That God's interested in the whole person. So that maybe that need that sickness, that illness, that pain point, we actually might need to really do something with that. Before that. Because on the other side of it, Naaman's whole world changes. And now we might be able to see why, in the very beginning, God is giving Naaman victory, the military commander. That maybe God's plan all along was to influence this person who's so influential in this other rival kingdom that if his perspective shifted, the nation shifts with it. Because oftentimes it's not the top person that's the one that really makes the decisions, is it? So for a moment, we can step back and go, God had this big plan through this story that at the beginning made no sense at all, but at the end makes all the sense in the world. Because that's how grace works. Unexpected people and unexpected places to deliver unexpected grace. And so this this story, as short as it is, helps us to remember that there's there's true life change waiting. True change waiting for people. God desires to deliver it through people like you and me. Absolutely. But it comes as we've experienced it ourselves and we let it flow into other people. It comes because we recognize that we have Naamans in our lives. It's not just like we need to get them saved. Maybe the way you get them saved is because you deal with what's going on in their life now. You deal with the hurts and the pains and you wrestle with that. So maybe your role's more like a slave girl. Maybe it's simply to say, hey, I know, I know something that can help. And you start there. Maybe it's more like Elisha, like, hey, this is what you actually really need to do. You help them do that. And when they storm off angry because you didn't give them exactly what they want, well, you just wait till they come back again (laughs) without anger and judgment, right? I think the one thing that we can't do is we can't be the king of Israel the one thing we can't do is be the person that says, how dare you come to me after all the stuff you've done, all the mess ups you've made, all the way you've destroyed life, how dare you? I don't think we can be the king of Israel. Out of all this, that's the one thing I'm 100% certain on. Right? I think God wants to bestow grace. We may not get it all the time. I am sure, I mean, the king of Israel's evidence, I am sure that God's people were looking at this, going, why is this guy coming to us? And yet that was, that was the moment. That was the moment that God was waiting for for people to get and they didn't get. So I, I want to invite you to, to try and think about the Naamans in your life. Who, might be, who is it that God might be bringing into your path? Probably a person that you're like, I don't get why this person's like in my world. That's probably a good tip, like a good clue, (laughs) that God's up to something. And again, it might just be like you're pointing them in the right direction. Might be that you're actually helping them like Elisha. Again, but it's definitely not turning them away like the king of Israel. Definitely not that. Let's pray together. God, we're grateful that you have, you have sought, you thought it's fit for us to, to experience grace. That you found it, uh, you found us worthy. You found us, uh, yeah, worthy of that gift. I mean, I guess from our own perspective, we'd probably say we aren't, and maybe that you'd agree, but you still gave anyway. So we're grateful for that, God. We're grateful that you've extended grace to us. You've extended uh, healing to us. But Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to be aware of the Naamans that are coming into our world, into our lives, into our, our sphere of influence, into our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, our church. Help us to recognize those people that, that maybe it just doesn't make sense why this person's here. I pray, God, that, that maybe, uh, maybe they're coming into and crossing paths with us because you have some kind of bigger plan that we don't get. That you have a bigger perspective on, on grace. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to just to react in the simple ways of grace, offering the help, extending the hand, welcoming the outsider. Trusting, trusting that your plan ultimately is, is sort of their salvation, their sanctification. Uh, trusting that those are the things that are part of the plan and that we play a role in that. And I pray that you just help us to make sure we do one thing and that's not to be the king of Israel. Help us to be the kind of people where others find grace. Not the kind of people who turn them away.